Hey, uh, let's dig in. I think we're in Ephesians uh, chapter uh, 4, if I'm remembering right. And uh, as we begin, let's have a word of prayer and just ask God to guide us and help us uh, in understanding, and then we'll dig in. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you didn't leave us wondering, but instead you gave us your word and all that we need to know to live life well is here. And so, God, would you just guide us, lead us tonight? And, and we just want to acknowledge as we get ready that we don't have the answers. You have the answers. And that if we took all the combined wisdom of this room and added it together, we would still be nothing compared to you. And you understand and you know life in a way that we will never know it. So would you speak that wisdom into us tonight? Would you help us to understand Scripture clearly? Don't allow us to turn it or mess it, but instead help us to see and understand what you said. And God, may we be changed for it. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to get started. We're going to go. I want to remind you, if you haven't been here in a while or haven't ever been, that uh, if you uh, have a question, you're free to raise your hand, say, hey, wait a minute, you went too fast on that. I didn't get it. That's not what my grandma told me. Um, And we will stop and we will talk about that for a little bit. If we get a little too far off track, you may hear me say, hey, you know what? Come to me afterwards. I'll talk to you afterwards about that. I don't want to leave your question undone, but the whole room may not need to deal with that question. And so we may do that too. But if if you have a question, raise your hand. Do us a favor. Wait till the mic gets there because we're recording this. We've got military people overseas. We've got missionaries that listen to this study. And if you ask the question without the mic there, then they don't hear your question. It just sounds like I'm rambling aimlessly. Okay. All right. So here we go. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, I believe we got to verse 11. Does that sound right to everybody? Yes. Okay, one person's nodding. I'm going to go with it. All right. Here we go. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And it says, It was he, and he there is a reference to Jesus Christ. If you were here when we uh, finished it for Christmas, remember uh, the topic was Jesus. So it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Okay, so let's do it this by way of review. We've talked about this before. Let's see how much we're remembering. Uh, what does it take to be qualified to be an apostle? Help me out. Okay, you had to have had a relationship. You had to be around and witnessed. Okay, yeah, I didn't wait that time. Did I? All right. So you had to have witnessed the ministry of Jesus. You had to have seen the resurrected Jesus. Had to have seen the resurrected Jesus. What else? Third qualification. Had to have seen the ministry of Jesus, had to have seen the resurrection of Jesus, had to have been what? Called by Jesus in person. Okay, had to be called. Resurrection. Now, there's one exception to that rule that we just said out loud. Anybody remember who the one exception to that is? No. Uh, we believe that Paul is a young man, because remember this, right? So remember, here's the story of Paul. We'll see it real quick. Uh, remember uh, that in the book of Acts... Uh, they are getting ready to stone Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Remember that? There's a young man who stands by while they're stoning Stephen and holds the coats. His name is Saul, who will later become Paul. So our best belief and understanding is, is that Saul is alive and around and present in Jerusalem during the ministry of Jesus. So he has seen the ministry of Jesus. Okay, uh, He ends up seeing the resurrected Jesus. When does Paul see the resurrected Jesus? Where? Road to Damascus. And he is called in person by Jesus. Road to Damascus. Okay? So Paul meets all the qualifications. There's only one potential apostle who does not meet all three. Who is that? The guy they replaced Judas and... Is it Barnabas? It's Matthias. Okay? So it's Matthias. It's Acts. Okay? And remember when the disciples... All right, here we go. Let's go there because you're looking very confused. All right, here we go. Real quick, very fast. Go to the book of Acts. Here we go. Acts chapter 1. Here we go. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Here, here, here it is. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill uh, called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. 
And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they had been staying. And those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They were all joined together, constantly praying among the women and uh, and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. And he said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and he shared in this ministry with the reward he got for his wickedness. Judas bought a uh, field there. He fell headlong. His body burst open and all of his intestines spilled out. <clears throat> and, uh, Everyone in Jerusalem uh, heard about this. Uh, the Bible is not PG, by the way. Right. Uh, everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, Akemada, which is the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms. All right, wait. Okay, what? All right, here we go. Uh, verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time, so someone who has seen the ministry of Jesus... Uh, the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness to what? To his resurrection. Okay. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Bar, uh, Barsabbas, also known as Justice and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry, which uh, Judas left to go where he belongs. Then he cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. Okay, So you could argue there and say, hey, Jesus did not call Matthias in person, even though they prayed and said, Jesus, you need to, you need to tell us who this next one's going to be. They cast lots. Okay, Here's the long and the short of the conversation, just real quick. So based on the qualifications, had to have seen the ministry of Jesus Christ, had to be a witness to the resurrection, had to have been called by Jesus Christ in person, how many people today can be called apostles? None. How many can claim apostolic authority today? None. The office is vacant. It is no longer here. Okay? Because no one can meet the qualifications for the office. Okay? All right. So back. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 Here's why I do that, guys, and here's why I think it's important. There are people out there who are going to tell you that they have apostolic authority. They have the right and the ability to tell churches what to do. They have the ability and the right to tell you what God just said. Which, if you can tell me what God just said, we better write it down because that would be Scripture. If you can tell me what God just said, and it would be New Revelation. And nobody who doesn't have apostolic authority has that right. Okay? And the office is empty. And scripture is complete. And nobody has the right to add to or take away from what you and I have in the Bible. It's also why, guys, when you see on Discovery Channel and they start talking about the Gnostic Gospels, which are all written um, by charlatans in about 300 A.D., it's why they cannot possibly be valid because there is nobody who possesses apostolic authority and the right to write Scripture 300 years after the life of Jesus. Okay? So it's why it's an important conversation. All right, so Ephesians chapter 4, going back to verse uh, 11. It was Jesus, it was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets. What is a prophet? What is a prophet? Someone who encourages, edifies, and uplifts the body. Okay, say it again. Someone who encourages, edifies, and uplifts the body of Christ, the church. Hopefully, okay? <laughs> sometimes. Because <laughs> isn't it true that sometimes the people who heard the prophet did not feel encouraged? They did not. The prophet was saying, look, you've messed up. God is going to judge you. Repent or else. But I guess if you want to say, well, they was encouraging them to repent. Well, then, yeah. What is a prophet? Old Testament, or actually uh, scripturally, it's uh, foretelling, and today it's truth-telling. Okay. 
So here's, here's, whoop, let me, let's see if I can get my board up. I'm going to, I'm going to suggest, you guys can argue with me if you want, I'm going to suggest that the primary role of the prophet was foretelling, and yet there were moments before scripture was completed that they were foretelling. What's the difference between those two? If I foretell something, what am I doing? I'm telling you what is going to happen that has not happened yet. That's foretelling. Okay? So, would Nostradamus be a prophet? What do we think? Is Nostradamus a prophet? So how many say Nostradamus is not a prophet? How many say Nostradamus may be a prophet? Okay? Nostradamus is probably a prophet. He's just a false prophet. Okay? Um, he did foretell some things. Um, here's the reason that you and I know, though, he wasn't inspired by God. Why? Because he was inaccurate. And the biblical prerequisite for a prophet who hears from God is what percentage of accuracy? How much? 100%. So the minute Nostradamus says one thing, says one thing that is not accurate, then the Bible would declare and say it, he is a false prophet. And what are you supposed to do to false prophets? You pick up a rock and you send him where he needs to go. You, you stone him uh, because the Bible would say he is not from God and he is misrepresenting. Do not listen. You stone a false prophet. Anybody know the uh, accuracy of Nostradamus? We make a big deal. I mean, that, he, that's a real popular thing right now. Everybody wants to talk about Nostradamus and all his predictions. Anybody know uh, what his accuracy was? Huh? Yeah, less than 9%. So he was 91% inaccurate. And yet our culture wants to make a big deal. I, I can guess pretty close to that, I think. And yet our culture wants to make a big deal out of the guy. Isn't that amazing? Here's, here's the reason, too, though, that's a big deal. If the requirement for accuracy for a prophet is 100% or you stone the guy, you realize that was the standard with which Scripture was written. 100% accuracy or you kill him. That's a pretty high standard for Scripture. It's why you and I can base our lives on Scripture. Okay? All right. So, here's the thing, too. If you look back at Old Testament prophets, and although a part of their time would have been foretelling, what you also need to know is, that if you think about it, the vast, 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 vast majority of the time of a prophet was spent doing what? Forthtelling. See, if you read the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is what, 40, 53 chapters. What did Isaiah do the rest of his life? He foretold. He took what had already been said and told it again and again and again. The vast majority of the time of a prophet was forthtelling. It was a very limited moment in which he foretold. And now that Scripture is complete, guess what prophets no longer do? But somebody may have the—I think the gift is probably still alive and have the gift of prophecy, but they are forth-tellers. Any, anybody in the room, uh, the type of person that sits in front of the TV and yells at it sometimes? Okay, you might be a prophet. Anybody, anybody uh, see something that's really, really long and says, someone ought to write a letter? Anybody doing that? Okay. And you may not actually write the letter, but it bugs you for a while and you sure think about it. You may have the gift. The people with the gift of prophecy absolutely hate sin and feel that it always should be called out. They're always telling forth about it. Okay? So, back to the passage. Uh, verse... 11 again, it was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists. What's an evangelist? Spreads the gospel. Okay, spreads the gospel. How many, how many remember the kind of the old school evangelists that went all around America and they do revival meetings and do that type stuff? Okay, there was like three of us that were scarred. Okay, um, 
No, it was, a, it was a fun time. Remember a lot of that? A lot of times those evangelists, as they came around, uh, it was really more about kind of shaking up the sheep. It was more about kind of getting sin out of the camp. Now, sometimes they had an evangelism uh, part of it, but a lot of times it was directed even more to the community of the church. Here's what you need to know. That is not what this word evangelist is. They did not have anything like that in the New Testament church. So when the word here says evangelist, what was that person doing? If it wasn't the old-timey 1950 tent meetings, if it wasn't Billy Graham in the stadiums, what was this evangelist? Were they starting churches? They were church planters. Uh, You and I would today call many of them missionaries. They went to where the gospel wasn't. They would start a church, get it going for a little while, and then they would move on. Paul was an evangelist. That's the prototype for what this word is referring to. Okay? They'd go into an unreached area. They would start a church. They'd get the church going. They'd move on to the next unchurched area. You and I would call that missions. Verse 11 again, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. Okay, so let's stop for a second. He gave some to be pastors and to be teachers, and their job was to do what? To prepare people to to prepare people works of service for what? Prepare people for. Works of service. Works of service. So if that's accurate, if who in the church is supposed to be doing the ministry of the church? Who? Us. See, in, especially in the American church, we've got this really weirded out because we got this idea that the pastors or the staff does the ministry. And we just come and watch them do the ministry and then we tithe so they can be paid. That's not biblical. Uh, The role of pastor-teacher, the role is to prepare God's people to do the ministry. And, and, I mean, guys, you just even think about this. At the end of the day, if if all this is about is you watching your staff do ministry, what is that, 30, 40 people? But how much can Chandler be changed? I mean, how much can our communities be changed if 6,000 people are doing ministry? And, And the role and the job of the pastor, of your staff, is not to do ministry. It's to prepare God's people to be ministers. You are not invited to be a spectator. You're invited to be the ministry. To change your neighborhood, to change your community, to change your world. Not from the sidelines, but by getting your hands dirty. Verse 12 again, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Attaining unto the whole fullness of Christ. Whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay, so he says, hey, here's, here's how this is supposed to look. This is how this is supposed to work. The pastor, which my pen is not writing now, the pastor and the staff are preparing God's people to do ministry. Who then are ministering to other people. That works, guys. All right, this is this is genius. If you get the drawing's not, but it, it, the system is, and then that person is to be preparing or ministering into the lives of others. This thing is supposed to go viral. So you think Facebook thought this up? This was not Facebook. This was God's plan from the beginning that you and I would take whatever God had done in our lives and we would always be giving that away. Christianity ought to be the most contagious thing in this world. People should not be able to run up, rub up against us and not be changed for having rubbed. Because each of us is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
doing the works that we were prepared before we were ever born to do. Okay? Then, quick question. Um, yep. Back to the apostle in writing scriptures. Um, my son just said, so in the Old Testament, what was that acid test? How come the Old Testament was written by people who were not apostles? Like, what is right. the definition of who could write the Old Testament? Right. So in the Old Testament, the office was the office. That's a great question. The office was the office of prophet in the Old Testament. And the office in the New Testament was that of apostle. Yeah. And you've actually, you've actually got... Um, James, the brother of Jesus, who probably doesn't hold the official title of apostle, who writes part of Scripture, but he sees the ministry of Jesus and he witnesses the resurrection of Jesus as he writes. Great question, though. Love the question. Okay. All right. So God's people doing the ministry, doing the work of the ministry. And then it says, this is supposed to go on till we become mature and we reach the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What is, what does the fullness of Christ mean? What is the fullness? In other words, if you and I are supposed to attain or we're supposed to reach the fullness of Christ, if that's what we're shooting for, then, then what is the fullness of Christ? How would you and I know if we had ever gotten to the fullness of Christ? Isn't that an interesting question? What do you think? What is the fullness of Christ? Pastor Lynn, would it be at glorification? Would it be what? At glorification? Yeah, I, by, the time, by the time we get to heaven, boy, that's going to be complete. I mean, that's, you know... Everything that is still lacking in my growing up is going to instantly be completed. And yet, as I and you and I struggle in this world, you and I are supposed to be striving for the... In other words, here's the idea. Okay, so when you and I get to heaven, instantly, everything we did not know, every part of our life that was not surrendered, every sin that that we had always been struggling with and had, you know... All of that is done. You and I in heaven are made perfect in Jesus Christ. We understand that, right? Here's what, here's what Paul's asking you to do. That when you go to heaven and you're made complete, that it not be a very big change. That you and I live so completely in Jesus Christ here that the difference between the fullness of Christ and me now isn't that drastic then? Isn't that an interesting thing to strive for? That I would go to heaven and say, whatever work is still undone in my life in Jesus is fairly minimal because I have lived my life in absolute obedience and surrender and in the fullness of Jesus Christ. So, what would the fullness of Christ be? Any guesses? Yep. The ascended Jesus. To what now? The resurrected, ascended Jesus. Okay, so but what would it mean for me to live in the fullness of Jesus? What would that mean? To be without sin, if you could. Okay. As much as possible. As much as possible to live without sin. It seems to imply uh, spiritual maturity. Uh-huh. So that we're becoming more and more like Christ each day. We're striving to the end like Paul who said he ran his race to the finish. Right. So in maturity and striving to be like Jesus more and more and more each day. So what would it mean if I had reached, if, if that became the fullness of Christ in me? And I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm agreeing with you. I think it's a maturity question. I... Why is it using that terminology, the fullness of Christ? Could it be that we realize that because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, it had nothing to do with what we will do, but, but, but because we accept him as our Christ, we have reached the fullness due to that of his righteousness, regardless of the unrighteousness in our lives. The unmerited favor. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what you're defining is grace a little bit for us. 
Okay, so we're going to throw a fairly good-sized Bible word. What we're really talking about here, guys, is sanctification. So in other words, once I became a Christian, it is absolutely God's intent, okay, sanctification. Okay, sanctification. Am I pretty close on spelling, sort of? Yes, okay, all right. You, it, at least it's phonetically correct. All right, so uh, it's sanctification. So if you, if you sit down with a theologian someday and you say, oh, no, no, this is sanctification. So sanctification is everything that happens in my Christian life after I get saved, after I become a Christian. And everything about sanctification is about becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And here in this passage, as Paul describes this process, he says, I want you to attain into the fullness of Christ. That's what sanctification is, the fullness of Christ in you. So let me see if I can help with this a little bit. Years ago, at church I was at, we, we did this little play, and it was called My Heart, Christ's Home. And what we did uh, in the play is we took every single room of a house, and it represented some part of my life. So uh, the living room kind of uh, represented, you know, kind of my day-to-day routine. And then I think they had like a, a recreation room, and that, that represented like the entertainment and the things I did, you know, to kind of blow off steam and relax. Every room represented some aspect of my life. And in the play, it was all about this individual who had said to Jesus, look, you can live in my living room. You just can't go to my entertainment room. And, and I got a closet on the hallway, and you, 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 under no circumstances are you to look in the closet. And really, it becomes a description of how a lot of us live our Christian lives, and that is we live lives of partial yieldedness. And there are places in our lives that we have allowed Jesus to affect and to change, but we still have the entertainment, or we still have the closet. We still have those places in our lives that we say, look... God, you're, you're just not going to tell me how to date, and you're not going to tell me what to do with my finances, and you're, you're not going to tell me what to do in my career room. And those rooms we still reserve unto ourselves. So what would the fullness of Christ be? It would be a Christian who says to Jesus, you have full access. There is not a room that you cannot go into and make your own. And I will live every part of that room in my life to your glory and not to mine in the fullness of Christ because my house is your house and my life is your life and I will not reserve even a closet from you now you get why this is a maturity question and Paul says I would that you would live in the fullness of Christ that there would be no part of your life left unyielded and no room of your heart that he would not have access to. That's where we're supposed to go. That's what we're supposed to strive to, that he'd be Lord of every room. Okay. All right, so back to the passage. Verse 14. Then, okay, then, when you've done this, Then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Okay? So he says, hey, look, as as you and I begin to do this, as we begin to grow up in Jesus, one of the things that's going to identify us is that you and I don't get blown around spiritually. Okay, so it's an interesting thing because I think he just talked an awful lot about our heart when he talked about living in the fullness. I think this is talking a little bit more about our intellect. So let me ask you this question. If I'm not going to get blown around by every weird doctrine that comes down the pipe, how would I arm myself or prepare myself against that? How would I prepare myself so that every time some false teacher or some Christian who's got some weird idea and some out-to-lunch doctrine came flying, how would I prepare myself so that I wouldn't get tossed around by that? Um, By knowing the Word of God and, uh, in an essence, knowing what is or isn't the doctrine of Christ. Okay. And I think great by learning the Word of God. By knowing Scripture. And being able to prove and to test whatever is taught by Scripture. 
this is an interesting moment because right now in our culture, and especially in church world, doctrine doesn't matter. And I, I believe we are living in an incredibly, incredibly scary time within Christianity because we are choosing churches by, does it feel good? Did I like the music? And nobody is asking theological questions. Nobody is asking biblical questions. And if you and I live saying doctrine doesn't matter and truth in Scripture is subjective and who cares, you and I are going to get tossed all over the place when false teachers come into the room and you and I will not have solid moorings within our lives. Which is one of the reasons I I want to commend you for being in a room like this where we're just digging into the Word of God and we're just saying, God, what does it say? And learning Scripture together. But you realize this room is countercultural to what is happening broad spread within Christianity today. We have lost our way theologically. And theology has become an afterthought. And good Bible teaching has become lost in the idea of simply saying, let's, let's do something that people enjoy. And if you and I live there, and if you and I can't turn this culturally... We're going to live in an America that forgets what the Bible says, and we're going to go chase some really, really weird stuff before it's said and done. Sorry, Lynn. Um, I just wanted to say as an example of that, growing up in the Catholic Church, you get to understand what the Catholic Church doctrine is, but you don't understand what the Bible's obediences are. Um, A friend of mine made, made a comment, a joke, that said, When you walk into a Catholic church, you see pictures of tortured souls on the wall to remind you how much you're loved. And I just thought that was kind of ironic because nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to be tortured to be loved. It does say that you will be put through trials and that, you know, the life of a Christian will be a hard one. Um, But being told something for 15 minutes every week as opposed to ever getting your hands on a Bible and reading Mm -hmm. it yourself... But yet the Catholic Church is a formidable organization, and many people look to it and say, hey, that's the Word of God. Mm-hmm. But yet it's so far removed from anybody picking up their own Bible, reading it, understanding obediences, and understanding what their version of God is to them, what their connection of God is to them. Right. And I, you know, and, and I think, you're, you know, to be honest, and I'll just say it quietly, and I want to say it with, with some level of gentleness in the room, Probably the the evangelical, and when I say evangelical, you're talking about pretty much uh, Christians that are that are not in the old school mainline Episcopalian Methodist, but evangelical would be more like the Bible churches, the uh, evangelical free Baptist you know, churches, uh, more the churches that which would be would be much more engaged in Bible study. And the criticism that we've had always toward the Catholic Church was, you're not spending enough time in Scripture. And tradition has taken the place of Scripture sometimes. That, that's, a, that's a long-term discussion. That's a long-term argument back and forth between the two groups. Here's my fear that's going on right now, and that is within what has traditionally been Bible-based churches. We are spending less and less time in Scripture, and we are worrying less and less about doctrine. And about truth. And it is not healthy. You cannot get where we need to get if you don't have an emphasis on learning God's word. You have to be willing to spend time doing that. So I'm, I'm more afraid of what we're doing than what anybody else is doing. And not being in the word of God enough. Okay? Alright, so here we go. Verse 14. Uh, then we will no longer be infants tossed to and fro by the waves. We talked about that. Blown here and there by every wind of doctrine, teaching and cunning and craftiness of men and deceitful scheming. Instead, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head Christ. Now, it's an interesting phrase. So he says, look, instead of getting blown around by all sorts of teaching and all sorts of false doctrine, instead what we're supposed to do is what? What does it say? Speak the truth in love. Okay? Why do you think he feels compelled to use that last phrase, speak the truth in love? Why do you think he feels compelled to say that? Why does he just say, speak the truth? Speak the truth. 
as a prophet, I could say that um, it's very unwelcome and you're unpopular when you just speak the truth without speaking it in a way that people will understand hmm. um, and be loving to them. Hmm. See, so I think you're right. Sometimes you can speak the truth and it's about winning the argument. See, I, I'm right, and you're wrong, and I'm, I'm telling the truth, and you're telling a falsehood. But instead of it being about helping you grow, I just want to win the argument. And that gets really, really ugly, doesn't it? it that, that's part of what turns people off to Scripture and to God. Because I think for, for far too long sometimes at church, we have argued to win and not argued to help. So he comes and he says, hey, speak the truth. And that's, that's the thing you've got to be willing to do. Now, speaking the truth sometimes is scary, isn't it? Why is it sometimes scary to speak the truth? Because a lot of people don't want to hear it. Yeah. And, and you know, the truth is kind of like a bright light. And you ever woken up in the middle of the night and swift on a light and then... You know, and it just... It burns your eyeballs. And it, there's, there's something about it that is offensive. And... There are moments when the truth feels that way. It just, it just seems too bright, and it, and it feels offensive. It's a good way to lose friends. It, it's a good way not to get invited back to the party. And yet, the Scripture says, if we're going to do this, we have got to figure out a way to speak the truth in love. Why? What if, let me ask you a question. What if I know the truth? What if I know you're getting ready to make a horrible mistake in your life? What if I know that what you're getting ready to do is going to only lead you to heartache? But I also know that if I tell you that, you're going to be mad at me. And what if in that moment I choose instead of speaking the truth to you to be silent in order not to lose your friendship? Let me ask you this. Is that love? To a Christian, that's sin because you have um, a calling to teach them that their way, no matter what, it comes back on you. Hmm. Let me ask you, you know, I, I think we're saying it right. That is, if I know the truth about you and I know there's a place in your life that that is out of line with Scripture or in defiance to Jesus, I have an obligation to bring that. Let me ask you this. If, if I re, Let's say it's Tuesday, and I realize on Tuesday that there's something misaligned in your life or something wrong. Am I obligated to say that to you on Tuesday? Isn't that a good question? If, if I see sin in your life, if I know you're doing something wrong on Tuesday, am I obligated to say something to you on Tuesday? Okay. How many say, I, th- I think you should say something on Tuesday. How many say, I think maybe Wednesday would work a little better. How many say, I'm just scared. <laughs> okay. Here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to suggest that one of the mistakes that especially people with the gift of prophecy make is that every time they see a sin on Tuesday, they say something on Tuesday. Because that's just how prophets are wired. If I see it, I got to say it. And I will suggest to you that sometimes that's the worst thing you can possibly do. Because your job and my job is not to be the Holy Spirit. Your job and my job is to work with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit may not have gotten that heart ready on Tuesday yet. Does that make sense? And I believe that what you and I have to do when we see the truth in someone else's life is we have to begin, I think, to say, Hey, God, I'm willing to say the truth in love. But I need, to, I need to sense that this is the moment to say the truth. So I'm going, to look for a, I'm going to look for a soft moment in their heart. I'm going to look for a moment when I think I see you nudging them. And then what I'm telling you, God, is I promise I'll have the courage. I will speak the truth in love when the moment comes. But just because I know it today doesn't mean I have to say it today. But I will have to say it sometime. Does that make sense? How many of your parents? You know this, don't you? Right? 
You know, there, there are moments when your, your children's hearts are a little bit more tender and a little bit more ready to hear something. And sometimes just waiting till heads cool down or waiting till the day after, sometimes that's the hugest part of wisdom. And sometimes, guys, and I'm, you know, this, you're hearing a guy who's learned this the hard way. Sometimes when you're speaking truth, you don't have to dump the whole truck in one city. Okay? And, and I'm just going to suggest to you that maybe one of the markers of when that's happening is, is that when you begin to get a real reaction, when, when, when they start to go, whoa, 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 that you and I maybe take that moment to say, you know, that's almost like asking someone to drink too big a cup of water too fast. And, and when you get that, whoa, 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 it's like choking. And so you go, no, 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 I'm, I'm okay. I, 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 just, I just wanted to ask. I just wanted to, but I, I don't have to dump the whole load right now. And, and I can wait till the next moment that I think your heart is soft and the next moment that I think God is dealing in your life. But I, I, I don't. See, people who are winning the argument have to dump the whole argument. You've you got to get them to acquiesce. You've got to get them to go, uncle. But if you and I are trying to encourage and build each other up with the truth, it may be that you dump a little bit of the load today and you dump a little bit of the load a month or two from now. As long as you're committed to delivering the truth. To someone. Questions? Comments? Pastor Lynn, is yeah. that the same as the scripture? I don't remember if it's First Timothy or Second Timothy about all scripture is useful for correcting training. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Is that the is that the foundation you're using and you're just saying don't dump it all at one time? I you know what I don't know that I'm trying to argue even from a biblical I think the biblical mandate is is that I am obligated to speak truth into your life and I'm obligated to do that with love. I'm now coming maybe back from just a little more pragmatic and a practical type of part that says, I've done that. I've, I've walked up to people and I've dumped the whole dump truck on them, only to have them so frustrated, so angry in the moment that nothing was accomplished in their life. There was, there was, there was no room for the Spirit to still work because they were too busy being angry at me for being such a jerk in how I delivered it. And so I'm just coming back from practical experience that says, you know what, as long as I'm committed to delivering the truth, I don't necessarily have to deliver all of it in one sitting. I, I think there's people are able to receive truth at different rates. So as long as I love you enough to be committed to the process, and I'm going to come back later, and I'm going to talk some more, I don't have to get you all the way from A to Z in one sitting. If I can get you from A to F, that may be okay for today. And then we'll come back to F and we'll get a little further next time. That makes sense? Yep. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think the biggest thing is remembering where we came from a lot of times when we're speaking. Because if we look back to when in the dark side, you know, where, where we were before and when somebody spoke to me in a light way or whatever, I didn't, they didn't puke on me per se. And yeah. we get, the way we present it, could, uh, if we look back, it, it helps. Yeah. How, how many of you grew up in Jesus and got mature in like a week? Okay. So, so we all need a little bit of time. Here's, I'll give you one little last piece, that nugget out there that I'll just uh, give to you. I think one of the most powerful ways to present truth, especially offensive truth, is in the form of a question. See, because if, if we, we're so prone in truth to say, thus says the Lord which means you're, you're wrong, I'm right. And we do it in the form of statement. Two plus two is four. Well, once you say it that way, all that's left is either the admission that they are wrong or a fight. Two plus two is four. That's all you've got left, right? Either admitting that that's true or a fight. But isn't it sometimes more powerful to say, hey, hey, wait, wait, wait. what if... Two plus two equals four. Well, that would change everything, wouldn't it? I mean, that would, that would, your whole life would be different if two plus two is four. What if that's true? And now you give them the opportunity to have to go wrestle with the idea that two plus two is. So let me give you an example. Okay? Because I think we do this at our church a lot of times. And, and sometimes we get a little bit criticized because they say, boy, you just, you just ought to beat people up more. And if you beat people up with the truth, very often you end up with very few people willing to listen to the truth. 
So let me give an example. How many people understand that Scripture says you should not live with your boyfriend before you're married? Okay, most of us, okay? Uh, The ones that didn't raise your hand, you can meet with me afterwards. No, I'm teasing, sorry. Most of us understand that biblically. So, guys, we all agree with that. There's not one of us in this room that fudges on that idea. But you realize on any given Sunday, we've got any number of people coming in this room who don't even know Jesus yet. And then we've got a lot of baby Christians that come in the room, too. And if we stand up on Sunday and just go, hey, look, if you're sleeping with your boyfriend right now, you're going to hell. Okay, would you just come down here and repent and come on, you know, do either that or leave. You know, I mean, come on. It's pretty clear in Scripture. And we're right. We're right. There's no, there's no doubt about it. The Bible says that's wrong. And you're wrong. You, we could do that. There's also the opportunity to ask the question and still be dealing with truth and to say, hey, what if? What if God knew exactly what he was saying when he said, don't do this before marriage? That you will take something that is so unbelievably powerful between a man and a woman. And if you give this away indiscriminately, if you do this with disregard, you'll never know the wonder of what God created this. What, what, if, what if that's what's at stake? And what if this will bring you lifelong regret? What if God's right about this? You and I have still told the truth. We've given them the opportunity to think about it on the drive home. And so I'm just going to encourage you that sometimes, and when you have to deliver truth, the most powerful way to deliver truth is in the form of a question versus a statement. Try it on your kids. See what happens. Okay? All right. Verse. Yeah. I just had a comment about that. that Back to what I said is that um, we as Christians, a lot of times, um, we don't have the patience that God has. Yeah. We want the answer to our prayers immediately. We don't wait on his timing. So that goes for um, us when we're correcting someone also. We want to be right we immediately. We have to be walking in his timing yeah. and not our own. Yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. God is much more patient with us than we are with each other. Where are we at on time? Got uh, four more minutes. Oh, oh man, hours. Okay, here we go. Let's try and get one more verse done if we can uh, real quick. All right, so back to the passage. Verse 15 again says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, who is the Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. What is this reference now in Scripture to the body and each part doing its work? What's he, what's he alluding to? What's he talking about? Church. And the body is what? What's the body? Us. And the body is each one of us doing whatever it is that God designed us for. Here's the thing I'm just going to toss, and you guys can go home and think about this. When God was creating you, was he creating you for intel? Or was he creating you for the church? When God created you, I mean, was God going, boy, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping Enron doesn't go under. Because I, I created a whole bunch of accountants. And I don't know what to do with them if Enron folds. I... When God thought about you and your purpose and the very cause for which he created you in this world, was it for the career-based task thing that you would do? Is that why God created you? So that you could go be part of the labor force for 40 years and... Get a retirement. I mean, is that, was that the plan? Or did God create you for the church? That you and I would be ministers of the gospel, growing each other up 
into the likeness of Christ and changing the lives of people around us who did not know our God. That each one of us would have our part. And guys, we don't have the same assignment. Some of us are hands and some of us are mouths and some of us are feet. And those roles are different. But here's why that is such a powerful question. If God created you for your place in the church and for what you would do in ministering to people around you and in the body of Christ, then the next logical question is, what's your part? What's your role? What is it that God created you hoping you would do in the body of Christ for his namesake? And are you doing it? Because if you get the 40-year badge at Intel and never learn your place in the body of Christ, you'll have missed why you were created. It's why I meet men all the time and they go, man, I'm just not fulfilled at work. And I say, I don't care. I don't care. You weren't created for Intel. You weren't created to... Be a teacher. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. It may be that your assignment at Intel is part of what you do in carrying out your role in the church. But Intel is never where you're going to get your satisfaction. It's never where you're going to find your worth. It's what God created you to do in the kingdom and in the church. And if nobody's life around you is being changed for the cause of Christ, if nobody is better and closer to Jesus for you having existed, and whether that's because you do acts of service or whether you're a teacher somewhere or or whether you're just that silent and secret person who blesses people's lives that they don't even know you did it, I don't care what that is, but if nobody's life is better in Jesus for you, then you haven't found your place in the body and you haven't found what you were created for yet. And you won't be satisfied till you do. Let's have a word of prayer. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we just we just thank you for your word and for tonight. And God, we ask that we would maybe even leave this place kind of pondering uh, what we've heard and what we've said together. And maybe, Lord, that we'd move a little closer to you and maybe maybe a little further in the fullness of Christ. That rooms that have previously been unavailable and closets that have been locked would begin to open up and We'd simply say, no, no, I, I want Jesus to invade every part of my life. And, and I, w- I want to find the purpose in which God created me and why I'm here and what is my place in the body of Christ and where am I, where am I supposed to serve and whose lives am I supposed to affect. So God, we just invite you to speak to our hearts and do whatever you need to do with us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Hey, thank you guys. Thanks for-